you can change the world. Learn from proven change makers from all walks of life. They'll show you how to raise money, invest for impact, and so much more. You can start small, start today, and never quit. You can change the world by strengthening your superpowers. Now, welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and I'm excited to have with us today, Richard Lawrence. He's the author of Carbon Done Correctly. He is um, uh, a philanthropist uh, and fund manager who's got an extraordinary track record and also helped found a number of nonprofits and foundations and uh, has recently written and is about to have published, I think as we air this, it will be available today or tomorrow, his new book, uh, Carbon Done Correctly. Richard, welcome to the show. Devin, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you and appreciate you making the time. Um, tell us a little bit about Carbon Done Correctly. Well, Carbon Done Correctly is a story that sort of tracks my life over the last 20 years. Um, it actually all started when I, I moved my family from Hong Kong to San Francisco, and I was worried about my young children living in a very hedonistic society. And so we talked our way onto a medical mission that took us up into a little town in the hills of, of Honduras in Central America. And um, I spoke Spanish and uh, we, we went in with a small group of doctors and a youth group. And uh, that region, Honduras in general, at that point had been absolutely destroyed by a hurricane in 19, uh, 1980, 1998, 1999, somewhere in there. And it had really been destroyed. And we came in with doctors from the US and living on the floor of a elementary school providing help. And my 11 or 12 year old daughter was bathing kids with impetigo and scabies. And it was sort of a good thing. Dad kind of liked putting the kids through this, um, sort of telling them that they had a bigger responsibility for other people around the world than just themselves. And one of the things we saw in, the, in those clinics were very often there were women and children lined up against the wall of, this, of the classroom, sucking on nebulizers. And I'm not a doctor, I didn't understand that, but because I didn't see anybody smoking. We were up in the hills where they grew coffee. There wasn't a lot of pollution. And it was always a constant dilemma of why these women were, 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 were so sick with lung disease. And then probably in our third year of going to the medical mission, late one afternoon, I, I came outside absolutely exhausted. And I sat down on one of the benches just to kind of chill out a little bit. And I looked up and I heard my daughter's voice screaming excitedly as she came through the gate of the school with followed by three or four of the local girls. And she said, dad, I figured it out it's the stoves. And she had gone back into the village with his, her friends and had gone into one of the homes, a typical Honduran home, dirt floor, rectangular building separated by a sheet of plastic 
And on one side was where they lived and the other side was uh, where they ate. And, uh, they had a big round uh, stove with like a top of an oil can on top of it, the big wide mouth with big logs in and uh, smoke was just all inside the house. And my daughter at 13 or 14, whatever she was, she figured out the connection between the stoves and the lung disease. And so um, we did some work and figured out that there were some people building stoves that had been designed by some, an American engineer, Larry Winiarski. And the next year we came down to Honduras. My daughter raised enough money to build 29 of these stoves. A group from Tegucigalpa came up uh, to Atima up in the hills and uh, they taught us how to build these stoves. And uh, right from the beginning, you could see that the intervention of the stove was really great. Uh, on the photo that you see there on the left in the pink was Doña Emilia. And after building 29 stoves, I went to Emilia. I said, Emilia, I need your help. I want to build more stoves. And so she hired the people that you see there. There's Chepe and, and Professor Elder, myself, Santos, um, and a couple other early assistants. Um, and we built this stove right inside the home. Uh, and 24 hours later, after letting it cure, you come back, you turn it on, and there's no smoke in the house. That, uh, and, and the wood burns half of the amount of wood that it was burning before with no smoke inside the house. And uh, that was great. So we started building stoves. The trouble was I didn't have any money. And, uh, and I was wandering around trying to figure out how we were going to get money to build all these stoves. And one afternoon, I just by chance walked into the MIT library in, in Boston and went over to the environmental section because I was increasingly worried about climate change. And uh, there was a book by a guy by the name of Ricardo Bayon, The Voluntary Carbon Market. And I took it home and I read it. And I'd never heard of voluntary carbon market, carbon credits or anything else. But he talked about the ability to mobilize capital. And that's what caught my eye. And he talked about the gold standard, which had a methodology for cook stoves. And I, I said, ah, oh, we could sell carbon credits, gold standard carbon credits to get the money to build more stoves. And uh, I wandered back a few weeks later, back to my office in California. And I told my longtime assistant, Esther Adams, I said, Esther, we're gonna become gold standard certified. And we're going to sell carbon credits to fund our work in Honduras. And uh, that was the beginning of a very long process. It took us four years to get verified and validated um, and to sell our first credits. But as we did, um, carbon credits were interesting because one of the things is you get audited very, very intensely um, by groups and by the gold standard themselves. And what we learned early on is that in abandoned stoves where the ladies did not use it, there was no carbon credits to be had. And so there we really started looking at the stove project much more holistically. So we had to improve our stove. We had to improve the education. We had to improve the supervision. We had to improve the monitoring and the repeat visits to the homes. 
And eventually through that four, five, six year period, we got to the point where we were building really good stoves. And, you know, not surprisingly, uh, without any marketing whatsoever, we had long lists of communities around Honduras and now with Guatemala that send in solicitations to us to, um, to have us build more stoves. And so we've built on the back of gold standard certified carbon credits, we've built now 310,000 stoves all throughout Guatemala and, and Honduras. And we have wow. 250 people working for us. So it's been quite a, quite a process. Yeah, it, this is uh, amazing work that you're doing and it, it really is inspiring. And so, so the book uh, sort of builds on this theme, right? It's it sort of to, to share some of the stories uh, of your experiences and, and to make a case for this. Um, you know, we, we are in kind of an interesting spot in the history of carbon credits, though. Uh, they were not especially uh, controversial uh, until recent years. Uh, some of the folks, um, I find it a little bit surprising, but some of the folks that are uh, the biggest advocates for climate interventions and solutions sometimes are critical of carbon credits. How do you respond to that criticism when you hear it? Well, I think there's blame. I think there's blame on both sides. I think over the last 10 years, 12 years, a lot of new methodologies were developed and those methodologies were not strong enough. And so what that resulted in was an overcrediting of emission savings. And quite rightly, those developers are subjected to uh, criticism. Uh, on the other side of the coin, um, the critics tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so they'll find a cookstove project that they believe is overcredited, and then they'll pass that all cookstoves overcredited. Um, and so there's a lot of that going on. And, and so the answer to that, Devin, is a whole process that the world is undertaking now through the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market, through the Voluntary Carbon Market Initiative, um, who are working both to increase the, dur the durability and accuracy of the methodologies, and the VCMI is working at, at making sure that the claims that companies make are accurate. And so this work is ongoing. We're about two thirds of the way through getting to a point where we're really gonna be start uh, uh, approving specific methodologies. Um, and I think that, and, and at the same time that the, we're improving methodologies, we're also gonna be eliminating other methodologies that don't, do not qualify. Um, and we, the, we, we need to go through this like any young market that that's comes and gets created quickly. We need to look at the regulations. And there's a saying that I use in the book a lot, Devin, which is transparency leads to trust. Trust leads to scale and scale leads to carbon credits becoming a financial market where it could be an effective tool to help us address the climate crisis. 
And so when you think about transparency, we need to think about transparency at all aspects of carbon projects. We need to think about all aspects of, uh, of investigating the methodologies. We need to think about all aspects of looking at the behavior of the, of the market intermediaries or brokers. And we need to look at all the behavior uh, of the buyers. And as we shine light on that, trust will develop and uh, the carbon credits will be able to play the role that we need carbon to play in the, in the fight against climate change. Yeah. It seems to me too, that, that there is a social justice aspect to this and, and maybe uh, you'd see it differently, but it seems to me that part of what's going on when we talk about carbon credits is a lot of the, what that is, is it's moving capital from places where we have capital to places that don't have capital where uh, climate mitigation can happen more affordably. And uh, it seems like that's kind of a, a win-win. How do you see that? Well, I, th I think that the, the G20 through COP conferences have always promised lots of money for the global South and not delivered. Okay. And carbon credits are one of the mechanisms that we can uh, deliver real capital uh, to the global South. So you're absolutely right about that. But at the same time, we developers are saying that these are real carbon emissions. And so it's, it's incumbent upon us, Devin, to make those carbon credits real, verified, transparent. And so you, you got to play both sides, I think, and um, which is fine. Um, we got to get good, strong rules. Then we got to have people who are really educated to audit those rules. And we have to have sustainability managers that really understand to, to, to do the analysis of those rules and of these programs. And that's all this work that we're doing now is paving the way um, to do more because it is a vehicle. Carbon credits are a vehicle uh, and are a tool to help us fight climate change. They're not the tool. They're just one of the tools. Um, and, and so we got to get it right for both for, for it to work. And that's why we're working so hard at the, at creating the, the regulatory and governmental framework for the voluntary carbon market. Yeah. Well, I, I'm excited that we have with us today, uh, Richard Lawrence, the author of Carbon Done Correctly, a great philanthropist and humanitarian. And uh, we're gonna come back and talk to him about his superpowers right after this message. Join us at Supercrowd Baltimore to connect with community-focused business leaders and investors working to support diverse founders, social entrepreneurs, and community builders. Learn how to raise money from the crowd and how to invest like a pro. March 21st at the B&O Rail Museum. Register today at thesupercrowd.com. Hope to raise money from the impact crowd. Good investors are as interested in community, social or environmental impact as you. Connect with Funding Hope an SEC-registered FINRA member crowdfunding portal to learn how to raise capital from the impact crowd. Scan the QR code now. Join us for SuperCrowd24 for two full days of wealth and impact-creating content at this virtual conference on April 17th and 18th. 
We'll have 100 speakers and live pitch sessions. Learn how to invest like a pro and raise money from the crowd. Save 50% with the discount code SUPERCROWD at thesupercrowd.com. Welcome back. We're here today with Richard Lawrence, the author and uh, humanitarian and philanthropist. Uh, we're we're going to be talking with him now about his superpower. So stick around for this conversation. Uh, Richard, uh, you have done so much. You've had such an extraordinary career. I know you're right now this minute fighting jet lag because you just got back from Hong Kong. You 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 travel the world and have spent much of your career working in Asia, volunteering in, in Latin America and elsewhere. Um, what do you see as your superpower? Well, Devin, let me preface it by saying I really don't like talking about myself very much um, as, a, as a rule. Um, I... I, I would guess if you ask the people around me, my, my superpower is at its core, my competitiveness. I, I grew up and worked my entire career in the stock markets in Asia. I, I went to Asia. I knew nobody in Asia. I had no connections. I didn't go to the university with anybody in Asia. I didn't know any Asian executives. So I really started right at the bottom it was all my sheer will of competitiveness uh, that allowed me to succeed. If you look at the work in Central America at that time, the world was littered with underperforming stove projects that weren't really delivering uh, the value and the, 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 the social benefits, the economic and, and the uh, environmental benefits. And it was my pure determination and competitiveness that we, we fixed our stove and then we fixed our project. And, and then uh, going on in the environmental work I'm working on now with regard to trying to close methane leaks, which is uh, about 40, causing about 45% of global uh, climate change today. Um, you, you, you don't do that unless you're incredibly competitive um, because, you know, fighting climate change is, is, is not all that much fun. You're up against a lot of opposition and uh, you've got to have very thick skin. Uh, you've got to endure a lot of disappointment where people don't do the right things, even though they could, they don't. And so I think it's my competitiveness and my determination that, that uh, keeps me going. As you think about that, I, I can imagine that you can recall times when that was really the essential element in success. I wonder, can you think of a, a specific challenging situation where you deployed that in your humanitarian work, where, where that competitiveness, that strength, that inner strength to compete helped you in overcoming a real challenge in, in your humanitarian or philanthropic work? Well, I'll tell you what, uh... I can't remember the, the year, but it was probably our, maybe our second or third year we were building stoves in Honduras. And I'd go down there and I would build a bunch of stoves and then I'd go back to where we had built stoves the year before to see how they were being used. And I went into this one village and there was a high percentage of the women that weren't using the stove. And, and there was a kind of a technical reason that they weren't using them. And I didn't know how to solve it, 
but I was really mad. I, I was mad that we were spending this money and the stoves weren't being used. And my my COO at the uh, at the time then is still my COO today is a guy by the name of Professor Elder Mendoza. And I was we were all taking turns going into the homes, but then it was Richard's turn to go in the home. Everyone got a little bit scared because Richard was getting really annoyed. And we were heading back to one of the other villages. And I was standing along a path with Elder. And I kind of had my arms crossed. And I was just like, this cannot continue. This, something's wrong. We've got to fix it. Um, and as I was going, and, and he was there, and he was equally mad, to be very fair to Elder. He was equally mad. Um, this herd of cows came down in front of us. And I don't think I ever stopped right, like literally right in front of us. And about 50 cows came running by us. I didn't move. I don't think Elder moved. I never stopped talking. And about a month later, uh, Elder sent me photographs of an instrument which cost us a dollar, which we call the Cinco. And the Cinco solved the problem of why the ladies weren't using the stove because you have a firebox that comes up and it's surrounded by wood ash insulation. And then you put a plancha on top and there's an inch between the bottom of the plancha and the top of the wood ash. And we would tell the ladies there's an inch, but they didn't understand that. And after that meeting, after that confrontation with Elder, he went back and invented essentially a windshield wiper that kept the wood ash exactly at one inch. And that $1 piece of equipment saved our lives. It absolutely saved our lives. And uh, we've gone on to build more than 300,000 more stoves. And just everybody uses it. It hangs in everybody's kitchen. They know exactly how to, how to do it. Great story. Great story. Can you give us one quick tip for strengthening our own competitiveness based on your experience? I think it's, you just don't give up. I, I have a, 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 a culture that I try to use at the companies I'm involved with, which is the idea that keep moving forward, keep looking forward, don't look back, don't waste time on your mistakes, just keep moving forward and, and stay together as a team, right? We all have to have each other's back. And so while Elder and I debated that along that path, we weren't doing it angrily at each other we were it was all frustration that we both shared and um i i think that the ability to keep moving forward not pointing fingers at at colleagues who make mistakes because mistakes are in all of our lives they really are don't point fingers just agree to move ahead always Great, great advice. Great advice. I love it. Well, listen, as we wrap up here, take a minute and tell people how they can find the book, how they can learn more, how they can connect with you, uh, how they can support carbon credits. We, we didn't get a chance to talk about Cool Effect, but feel free to mention that. Uh, give us a little bit of follow-up homework to do. Yeah. So there, the, to get the book, you go on Amazon, Carbon Done Correctly. It's going to be there January 31st. Um, so that's the first place and you can get the Kindle edition or the hardcover, uh, edition, uh, by all means, you can write to me. My email is, is rlawrence at carbondonecorrectly.com. 
um, and I'm happy to help in any way I can. Um, I tell all my friends and everybody that they should all, all of us individually should be taking advantage of our, um, of our carbon credits to offset our emissions. The average American has 16 ton footprint and you can do that through cooleffect.org, cooleffect.org. Um, and you can pick a project and offset your emissions and, and say that, look, I'm opting out of climate change. I have neutralized my emissions. Um, and then if you'd like to learn more about Proyecto Mirador in Central America, you can go to their website, proyectomirador.org, um, and learn about the project and, uh, and, and you can support them. You can support, uh, buying, uh, carbon credits through cool effect, or you can reach out to me, uh, for the book at carbondonecorrectly.com or Richard at carbondonecorrectly.com. Well, uh, we are so grateful, uh, Richard, for the, you taking the time to be with us today. We want to wish you every success with the book launch and with the great work you're doing at Cool Effect and Mirador. Uh, you, you're making a tremendous difference. We want to see you succeed. Uh, the, the world is counting on you, and I hope our audience will be truly supportive of the book and your work at Mirador and Cool Effect. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank, thank you, Devin. I'm very happy. It's a pleasure to be here today. All righty. Let's do some good.